Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sheila Shoiga, and welcome to Ready To Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life, Some names you'll recognise, others you might not. But my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort or simply entertain you. In this episode, I speak to Buddhist monk Galang Tupton. People often think meditation and mindfulness are a bit of a kind of escapist thing and they're absolutely not. They're helping you be more present and more strong, helping you to reclaim your power that's been given away so much to other things. Gelong is a title meaning monk and Tupton is hugely respected for his work in the area of spiritual growth and personal development. His first book, A Monk's Guide to Happiness, was a global bestseller and his latest book has just been released, Handbook for Hard Times, A Monk's Guide to Fearless Living. In this conversation, we learn about his past becoming a monk. He speaks about the importance of relishing micro moments in our day, reframing distractions when meditating, And he also guides us through a wonderful mindful practice towards the end of the chat too. And I started our conversation by asking him what led him to a monastery in the first place. It is such a long time ago because I've been a monk for 30 years. And so I've been a monk longer than I've not been a monk (laughs) in that I, I became a monk when I was 21. And those 21 years were filled with, um, adventure, with joy, but also with a lot of suffering. Um, I had quite uh, a, quite a severe burnout uh, when I was 21, which is what led me to a monastery. So what happened to me was I was, I was living a very fast-paced life in London and then New York. I was a musician, then I was an actor. And with that lifestyle came a lot of parties, a lot of kind of, um, kind of hectic living, but I was I was really coming from a, pr- a place of deep suffering. I was experiencing a lot of anxiety, um, which would sometimes tip into panic attacks. And I just f- remember I was constantly on the run from my own mind. And so I would kind of um, throw myself into a very, um, like, hectic lifestyle, both with work but also socializing, uh, to the extent I didn't look after myself. I didn't know how to look after myself. And it was very dramatic. Literally, when I was 21, I was living in New York and I woke up thinking I was having a heart attack. You know, woke up one morning with all the symptoms of a heart attack. And the doctors told me, your heart is in trouble, but we think it's more stress related. You know, they did scans and all of that. And then they said, physically, it's, it's all right, but it's stressed. You, you're having palpitations, um, atrial fibrillation. You're having all these symptoms that are coming from your stress levels. And you've got to do something about that. So that was the the kind of kick that pushed me into a spiritual journey. Um, I heard about a Buddhist monastery where you can be a monk for a year. And I went there just to try it out. But of course, I stayed. For a lot of people, the obvious thing to ask or to think about when you decide on, on a path as dedicated as a life as a monk is this, the element of sacrifice involved you know, what you're leaving behind, the potential possibilities that are not going to be part of your life if you commit this way. 
you know, having a family, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, and and of course, so so as a, as a monk, we, I am celibate, and I'm not allowed to take intoxicants. I can't have a drink or anything like that. And so, people often, when they meet me, they they are sort of interested in that side of things, like what have you given up, and what have you sacrificed? And I get that. I get that it sounds like I'm living a very restricted life. But the really interesting thing is that from my perspective, I don't really think about what I'm not allowed to do. I think more about what this has given me in that being a monk has has opened opened up so much time and space for me to really devote myself to my spiritual practice, but also to the work I do with trying to help people and teaching and writing and all of that. So for me, it doesn't feel like a life of restriction. It feels like a life of more freedom. Um, And it is quite a contrast because before I was a monk, I was definitely um, uh, not like a monk type of person. I was very much a party animal. So in a way, yeah, I've given up all those things, but those things made me unwell. Those things made me unhappy. And, um, you know, I'm not saying, you know, there's anything wrong with having relationships, for example. I'm not saying everyone should be celibate. I'm just saying that for me, I wanted to really focus and, work very deeply on my meditation practice and being a monk gives you the um, environment within, within which to do that. And you kind of feel a little bit like you're not having your own personal family, but you want to be in a larger family, like the community of, of everybody. So I think sometimes people wonder if, if you're a monk, you become a bit cold and, and detached. But I find I have very um, rich, warm friendships with so many, so many people. And I love that because I, I, I meet people on a level of their emotions and their heart and their spirituality. And we have really deep conversations. So Mm. I have incredibly rich relationships. They're just non-sexual. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. So you go into the monastery and is it, is it like, is it like a, I suppose a euphoric, this is where I meant to be. Or is it a slow burn? Well, I definitely felt incredibly comfortable in the monastery and putting the monk's robes on. And I felt very, um, like I remember after after I went through the ordination ceremony, I remember really feeling so kind of at peace in myself, like I'd arrived in something, into something that was my thing and felt right for me. Um, but I, I, I can't, I'm not going to lie, it hasn't been an easy journey and a, I've struggled a lot. And in, especially in that first year, I wasn't sure if I would stay longer or leave and the, the pull of my old life was constantly kind of calling on me. And um, I went into some retreats and in those retreats, I would just constantly feel like, should I run away? Am I in the right place? There was that kind of questioning mind takes over. But there was always that deep sense of certainty that this is a really good thing for me to be doing. I never really doubted um, Buddhism or the idea of being a monk. It's more, am I up to it? Can I handle it? Do I want to live a different life? So that struggle was ongoing for quite a while. And now I feel very settled into what I'm doing. But um, it's been a very rocky journey. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say, yeah, I arrived at a monastery and I was just euphoric and blissed out and floating around. Not at all. It's it's been a struggle and also a struggle learning how to meditate because I did things in quite an extreme way. I jumped into being a monk and learning meditation all at the same time. Um, So there's that struggle as well when you sit down to meditate and you you feel like you're battling with your own mind. And, And that's been a real rocky journey too. Mm. But all, always a good journey because I think the rockier the road, the more you learn, isn't it? I I would never want a smooth, easy path because then what's the point? I quite like facing challenges and working with them. I think that's what makes us stronger and more um, – it, it teaches us more about human nature. And are you able to, in the moment when you're in the thick of something difficult and you're in a very, you know um, – traumatic as the case may be experience, are you able to see the the light in that, the potential good that'll come out of that experience in that moment? In that moment is quite hard. It's, it, mm. I think it's more after that moment, you know, like, yeah. like when, when, when things go really horribly wrong, you're just so in, in that space of uh, panic or stress or upset. But I do find that afterwards, I'm able to look back 
on those things that are challenging. And in, in my book, I, I talk quite candidly about some really challenging things I've been through. Mm-hmm. And in all those situations, I describe how, yeah, all the emotions come up and you feel really stressed, but you have more tools to work with it. So even in the heat of the moment, you can learn how to calm yourself or how to not get so um, upset. But it's mainly afterwards that you look back and you think, yeah, I really learned from that. And this has given me uh, more material to work with. Can you share with us perhaps that experience? Or is there one of those challenges that you went through that you really feel was a huge turning point in your life? One that really helped you um, appreciate where you're at? Yeah, I would say um, for me, it's it's really been about working with depression and anxiety. Um, I have also had physical challenges with illnesses, particularly very, very severe COVID and long COVID, which I do touch upon in the book. But I think for me, a real turning point was was working out how to get to grips with my own mental health in that I I arrived at a monastery kind of driven by suffering and having a lot of um, anxiety and a sense of deep unease inside myself. And I think I kind of suppressed all of that when I became a monk because I just sort of tried to be a good monk and, and be kind of serene and maybe like a bit of a, like on a kind of trip, like a holy trip. And you can't sustain that very long because you have to really be yourself after a while. And it was when I yeah. went into quite long, intensive retreats that I started to have to work with that stuff. So um, I went into a very long retreat um, after being a monk for 12 years. I went into a four-year-long retreat where you are enclosed in a space for four years. I mean, there's a garden, you, you can get some fresh air, but you're basically in this kind of retreat compound for those four years doing a lot of meditation and having no contact with the outside world. And during that time, all of the, the, the depression and anxiety that I had been suffering from became stronger. It, it became very much my full-time experience of being in there. And what for me was a turning point was to to discover or to see just how much shame I had about that. I had so much shame about having depression and having these panic attacks. I thought it was so kind of shocking and shameful and that sh- I shouldn't be having these problems. And with that shame came a lot of resistance. So I was constantly pushing away the suffering and wishing it would go away and rejecting those parts of myself that were kind of crying out for help. And so I think what really helped me kind of start to turn that around was when I learned how to um, work with the emotions and work with the physical and mental pain and use that as meditation, actually bring that onto the journey of meditation. And um, I mean, for me, it's all about giving kindness to those parts of yourself that you normally reject. So whether it be with physical sickness or with emotions, with mental health, mm. with what, whatever it is that is um, making you suffer, I find that when you learn to meditate in that state and give that part of yourself kindness, love and compassion, it does start to change and your relationship with pain and suffering starts to change. So that's really um, a, a very big theme in my own life and also in the talks I give and the writing I do is trying to encourage people that suffering isn't something to be thrown away or rejected. It's something to be worked with. Um, My teacher always used to give the example of um, fertilizer on the fields. You know, it's made from compost and compost is made from all the rotting vegetables. So that kind of rotting vegetable, all all this part of ourselves that we think are rotten can be used as fertilizer if you know how to use them in the right way. Yeah. And it's also, I I always hear about the lotus flower, the lotus flower growing out of the sludge underneath this That's beautiful. a very beautiful image, isn't it? The, isn't it? In Buddhist um, art, they use the image of the lotus flower all yeah. the time. And that is the symbolism, is that it's a yes. beautiful, pristine, very pure flower. But it grows out of mud. It grows in muddy, swampy water. Mm-hmm. So that's a really powerful image for the growth of our spiritual path, is, is it comes from the mud. So out of the mud and uh, disgustingness of our own neurosis what we find it disgusting often don't we but out of that comes the beauty of our of our um 
to personal development, whether you call it spirituality, whether you call it personal development, it doesn't matter. You know, it, it's just about growing as a person and that you grow through the mud. You, you have to be, mm. you have to kind of use the mud to help yourself grow. Otherwise you're rejecting a huge part of yourself. People listening could be hearing this for the first time, perhaps, maybe not. Those who have heard what you're speaking about in various forms, but it might just be landing with them in this moment. Or it might be, you know, arriving to them now at a difficult time and it's what they need to hear. And I'm trying to think of myself when I was in difficult situations that as much as I might struggle to hear you speak in this way, I do feel that it would give me a sense of it's going to be okay and I'm going to get through this because I think a lot of the time that's what we need because we struggle to see beyond the difficulty when we're in it. Yeah. And it's true that it's it's quite a challenging message, isn't it, to be told, okay, your suffering can help you grow. That's a horrible thing to be told in a way because that, then we think, well, that sounds like a nice idea, but how do you do it? Mm. How, how do you do that? How can you just decide, okay, I'm going to grow? Um, because the pain is so intense, especially with physical illness. When you're in real yeah. pain and somebody says, this is good for you, you kind of want to punch them in the face. And so, yeah. <laughs> so it, it can be a very hard hitting message. But what I've really tried to do in, in, in this book in particular is um, help people to kind of dismantle the whole experience of suffering and exp explore what it really is. Like it, it's my mind and my body and my emotions and my thoughts and my reactions. And, and this is something I can work with. This is something I can transform and change. And then we need methods. And those methods have to start very gently and have a real step-by-step -step approach. You can't just force yourself to accept suffering. We've mm. got to train ourselves in a kind of incremental step-by-step -step way. And if you present it in that way with, with practical tools and also helping the person to... Um, look very compassionately at their own mind and see the potential for change and transformation, then it becomes a more manageable and even exciting or uplifting message. Um, I mean, I've, I called my book a handbook for hard times, but the subtitle is a monk's guide to fearless living, because I really wanted to have a message even in the title that, that says, look, fearless living is where you could, you could live fearlessly, even in, in the darkness and the pain and how do you do that? How do you become fearless? You become fearless through really understanding the nature of your own fear and learning to find the beauty and potential and richness within that. And I think it's got to be very practical. Otherwise, it sounds just like an idealistic notion that you could say, well, that sounds great, but I'm in pain. So, you know, don't just sit there telling me you can learn from this. It, it sounds, it, It's too impractical otherwise, just as a theory, isn't it? And that's part of your gift, I think, is that you break down, you know, what can be complicated um, concepts and you simplify them so that we can all understand them. Anytime I've heard you speak or I read your words, I find that they're very easily digestible um, because sometimes I think we do fear things like meditation are, you know, an element of detaching from distractions or whatever it might be. And this is this is what this is what I think you do brilliantly. Um, so in the four years that you were on this retreat, can you give us a sense of of what we're dealing with here? Because, you know, my idea or what I've done in terms of retreats is I might have done a weekend retreat or a week long retru retreat. And I know you've done various lengths of retreats, but the four year chunk of retreat is it really is quite something. What does that entail? So I know it sounds pretty extreme, but actually when you're in there, you kind of um, you kind of accept that this is now your life for the next four years. And it's like being at kind of college, like a meditation college or a meditation training camp. And, um, you know, when I went into that retreat, I'd already done some shorter retreats and I was kind of working up to it. And I'd already been a monk for a few years. So it's not like I was just thrown in the deep end and certainly nobody forced me into that. I chose it myself. Um, and then if you ask what it's like, so there's the kind of, um, there's the outer experience of it and then the inner experience. So the outer experience is you've got a schedule, you've got a, uh, you've got a, a, a situation that's very um, um, clearly established and laid out for you. You've got your 
your room that you do your meditation in and then you meet the other monks at lunchtime because it's a it's a group retreat but it's also very solitary in that you spend most of your time alone in your room and also you have to be silent for quite a big chunk of time maybe i think it was five months in the second year and even during the non-silent time you're not really having much time to talk to each other so it's quite a solitary experience but you have a very very um uh, clear schedule of meditation sessions lasting for two or three hours um, throughout the day. And so you've got this schedule that kind of holds you and you've got a set of practices that you're trained in and you, you do them. But then you have the inner experience, which is it's you in a room with your own thoughts and emotions. And it, it becomes uh, almost like facing your own psychology. And for me, it was very much about working with that depression and anxiety and actually for the first two years um, really struggling and drowning in that and not seeing any hope or any light at the end of the tunnel. And looking back, that was a really powerful experience for me is to go through that darkness. When you're in it, you you just want to get out of it. But mm. I think you have to go through it sometimes in order to find answers. Did you feel like leaving? Yes, absolutely. Yes, mm. yes. I was really... I was really um, reached my limits and sometimes you have to reach your limits in order to to kind of break through something or to to really know what you want because there was also that question of just like get out of here and just give up the whole thing but there's always that deep part of yourself when you know you're on the right track that holds you on that track and I'm really grateful to that part of me and also to the support I got from my teachers I I I um, have two wonderful teachers, Tibetan lamas, who are very, uh, they really understand Western psychology. They, they, they have been in the West since the 1960s. Uh, sadly, one of them has passed away. And um, okay. they trained me and continue, uh, continue to be my teachers in that sense. Mm. And that supports me a lot. That helps me through these things. I mean, obviously, the one who's passed away, I, I'm now sort of... Um, kind of uh, trying to absorb the teachings he gave me and work with those. He gave me so much to work with for the rest of my life. So even though I miss him terribly, he gave me so much and I, I know now what I need to work on. So that support mm. from outside is also important to have good teachers and a good support structure around you. Mm -hmm. Once you finished that four-year retreat, I mean, how did you feel at the end of those four years for start? So at the end of those four years, I really felt um, quite kind of peaceful and, um, you know, I'd been through something and now you come out of retreat and you see your friends and family again and you're like a kind of rabbit in the headlights. <laughs> and I quite quickly um, started working again with my, you know, teaching and traveling work. And I did find myself um, almost in a state of shock because I, arrived in London. I mean, the retreat was on an island off the coast of Scotland. And then next minute, I'm in London. And everything had sped up. I mean, as we know, the, the, techno the world of technology has really sped up so quickly mm. in recent years. The really interesting thing is that my retreat, which was from 2005 to 2009, during those four years, there were some quite major changes in technology, which have now become part of our daily life. For example, the smartphone smartphones were launched in that period you know before my retreat a few people had blackberries and then the iphone and all of that happened during the retreat also social media uh facebook and things like youtube they all happened at that time so what it means is that when i came out of the retreat um what struck me was how our relationship with information had changed so dramatically and maybe because I'd been away from ordinary society for four years on a remote island and then coming back into London, maybe it was more of a shock to my system. Mm. And if you're out here in it, you don't see it kind of building up. But for me, it was very dramatic, the shock. And so I arrive in London and everybody's got their faces buried in these gigantic phones and everything's moving images. I remember going up the, the escalator in the, in the tube station in London and the first thing that struck me was that the little billboard ads on the side were all digital, all moving images, and it made me feel quite dizzy. And I started to think, how are we now living? We're all living with this constant input of fast-flowing information, and what is that doing to our mental health? 
are, have our brains mm-hmm. had time to catch up with technology? I don't think so. And mm-hmm. what also struck me and still continues to strike me is how much the information we are um, viewing is monetized. And so what that means is that there's a commercial interest behind what we're viewing. So it's driven in such a way that will make us want more. So social media, advertising, even the way the news is presented has this sort of, you know, they call it clickbait, don't they? This kind of clickbait mentality, which means you've got to draw somebody in by surprising them, shocking them, exciting them. And then you sell them things. There's ads all over the place embedded within the articles that we read. So it feels a little bit like we're, we're having our, our, um, our emotions and even our body chemistry, our things like dopamine and adrenaline, the hormones of stress and, and addiction, we're having those manipulated constantly. Yeah. And I don't think we were ready for it. So I think we are a little bit in shock. And, you know, we might think that we are um, in control of our phones, but they are in control of us mm. in that we're so addicted and we're so easily influenced by what the information and imagery that's flowing towards us. So, so then I started to work in schools. Soon after my retreat, I started to give a lot of um, classes and talks in schools and universities. And talking to the students, they were incredibly open about it. They said, we know we're addicted to social media, and we know that some of the images we are looking at are making us feel bad about ourselves. We, we can see the connection. I mean, these are in, everyone's intelligent. Everyone knows what's going on, and mm. yet we give into it, don't we? And so... Yeah. Yeah, the the effect all of this has on our mental health is quite concerning. Um, and uh, okay, so that's going on on the one hand. Then on the other hand, I see a lot of hope and a lot of positivity, because particularly in my in my line of work and you know in the world I move in, I I meet a lot of people who meditate. I give courses. I, I give talks. I attend groups. I'm even working in hospitals and universities and schools and prisons. And you see how much more the appetite for meditation has increased. So in one sense, you could say there's a problem. In another sense, there's also a solution and a lot of hope. So I don't feel that the world is is in such a dreadful state. It's more that we have um, shadows and light and we need to learn how to balance the two. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Do you think there'll come a time when we do a full full circle on it that we'll realize, okay, while there are positives and technology has so many positives, of course it does, but the downside is also evident that people will, because I know myself, I have deleted many apps, social media apps off my phone. Now, I haven't got rid of all of them. I haven't got rid of all of them. So I'm not, you know, I'm a work in progress, but I would like to think that the more I want to be in the real the real world with my with my people, you know, with my partner and my kids and my friends, the less I want to be on my phone. And I know I'm guilty of it, as many of us are. Um, how is your own relationship with things like social media? Because I know you have an Instagram 
platform. Mm. And I know that conversations like this one are useful because you want to tell people about your new book, which is wonderful. But is it at odds with, you know, Tupton the Monk? Yeah, I, I agree with you that, that technology has a lot of benefits. Of course it does. I mean, it can save lives. And yeah. um, uh, also the internet and the way we communicate, we, we can share positive information. We can do things like this where we do remote interviews mm-hmm. during lockdown we all discovered the the power of being able to learn and share through through online conversations or whatever so it's not about oh we just have to unplug the whole thing and go back to how we were but isn't it about balance and i always think of it a bit like food i mean food we need food to eat but we can also make ourselves ill if we overeat or eat food that's not good for us and we have to find out for ourselves what how to how to eat healthily and nourish our bodies without overeating and all of that. So could it be the same with the internet? And I think that's what we, we could try to do is to use social media in a, in a creative, loving, kind, joyful way, rather than just a way to argue with people and or show off and be sort of narcissistic. It's all about how you use it, isn't it? I really encourage people to meditate formally sitting down on a chair or cushion every day, because that's when you really kind of get to grips with your own mind and train yourself very deeply. But the micro moments are equally important. And what I mean by that is throughout the day, you can just have a few seconds of mindful awareness where you might be standing in a queue and you feel the ground under your feet. You might be washing your hands and you really embody the moment, feeling the the water, the soap, the hands, movement of the hands. Um, it could be that you're standing in a queue, stuck in traffic, sitting behind your desk, uh, doing ordinary mundane tasks or being in stressful situations. And the more you can take your mind into the present moment for a few seconds each time and just let those moments be scattered throughout your day, the more you stay one step ahead of the buildup of stress in your life. Mm. literally on on a physical level, you're staying one step ahead of the buildup of cortisol and adrenaline in your body, which are the stress hormones. And I think if you practice this um, consciously and uh, effectively throughout the day, you um, you are managing the challenges of the 21st century and you are able to then use technology in a more non toxic way because you're giving yourself the protection against the toxic side of it. Mm-hmm. And then things get into balance. So um, I think I write in my book about how we keep we keep kind of having these little digital snacks throughout the day where we keep like snacking on our phone. But you could equally also snack on mindfulness throughout the day, tiny mm. moments, and that would rebalance things. And maybe you would start to be less addicted. We are all addicted to our phones. They, they, by their nature, they are addictive. And as I've described, there are uh, hidden persuaders within all the, the, the social media and news and everything that we see. So we've got to give ourselves more power in that world of um, over, being over-persuaded. And I think mindfulness gives you that power. Mm. People often think meditation and mindfulness are a bit of a kind of escapist thing, and they're absolutely not. They're helping you be more present and more strong, helping you to reclaim your power that's been given away so much to other things. You speak as well about reframing distractions, which I which I love, um, because uh, and I, I it happens to me also where I have to have a word with myself because that moment when I do wander, the negative voice inside will tell me, God, stop, you can't do, you're not doing it right. You're not meditating correctly. You know, why, why are you thinking of that? And I, I will have to let go of being irritated with myself and allow myself to try and just come back to the breath and focus on the breath. Um, And I think you've a wonderful way of speaking about those moments of distraction to give us a bit more understanding and a bit more compassion with our own meditation practice. This is definitely my favorite topic because I, I've battled with it myself and I meet so many people who battle with it now Mm. where you're sitting meditating and then your mind wanders and then you feel like a failure and you, you feel like you, you got it wrong. And I really like to dismantle that and, and look at it with people and explain that it's just based on a misconception about what meditation is. 
I think a lot of people think meditation is about clearing your mind and emptying your head of all your thoughts. To me, that's not meditation. That's being unconscious. I mean, <laughs> literally, it's like you've passed out on the floor and then yeah. you're just gone or uh, like a zombie or something like that. And so if you sit there meditating with that aim, you're going to feel enormously frustrated. You're going to feel like a terrible failure every time your mind wanders. And that's not the point of meditation. The point of meditation is um, to help you to gain more authority over your own mind so that you're in the driving seat rather than being driven. But that doesn't mean just blanking everything out. It means learning to work with the thoughts and distractions. So as you described, you're sitting there meditating and then your mind wanders and all you need to do is gently bring your, yourself back to the breath or whatever it is your meditation is about. You know, it could be breath, it could be uh, sense, other senses like sound or visual mm. objects. Some people use mantra, they use all kinds of different things, but they all have that one thing in common, which is you have um, something to come back to. And, and the coming back is what makes you strong. Because every time you come back to your breath, you are deepening your ability to let go of distraction and come back to the present moment. And it means that the thoughts, emotions and habits and basically your entire psychology will start to have less power over you so that you can be the, the one who chooses. We, we need to learn how to choose happiness. We need to learn how to choose to, to um, work with challenges creatively. We need to have that power of choice. And so every time you come back to the breath, you are literally exercising your power of choice. And if that's what you're learning, coming back to the breath, then the thing that took you away from the breath is quite useful. The thoughts that took you away are exactly what allow you to come back. So mm. when you sit there meditating and then suddenly you're thinking of what you're going to eat for lunch, that doesn't mean you failed. It means you now have an opportunity to come back to the breath. So the thought about lunch is, is even part of the meditation experience. It's all fine. Yeah. You can't get this wrong if you, if you get the right attitude. And again, you're touching on another one of your wonderful tips, which is you're, you're better to meditate badly than not meditate at all. As in, let's embrace not getting it right all the time, if ever, because if we think that way, well, we'll avoid doing it at all. Yeah, and there's a reason why it's called meditation practice. It's called practice, not perfect. I mean, practice means you're practicing something, you're learning something. And there's so many other things we do in life where we become a really kind of harsh perfectionist. And in a way, we're now in a culture where that's encouraged and it's kind of forced upon us, where we're told you've got to look perfect, be perfect, and all of that stuff. And it's so stressful, isn't it? So when you meditate, maybe this is the one time where you can absolutely be yourself and be kind to yourself and not worry about getting it right. Just do it. It's a bit like exercise or showering or anything. You just do it. You don't think, oh, I did that shower well, or I did that shower badly, or oh, I went to the gym well or badly. You just do it. And that's the exercise. It doesn't have to be so um, perfect. Just, just do it. It seems like the perfect time to ask if it's okay that you might guide us in in a in a meditation practice i know that you do a number of of shorter ones that allow us to be present and to um appreciate the moment so perhaps if you could pick something you might feel is appropriate right now that we might be able to do. Because I know a lot of people listen to podcasts when they're out for a walk or they're driving. So it depends on where somebody is at right now. Um, or it might be something that they pause and come back to at a time that feels right for them. But if you could uh, talk us through something now, we'd really appreciate it. That's great. So we're just going to do a simple exercise where we bring our attention into the present moment. And so just sitting on a chair as you are, all you need to do is um, bring your focus into your body by feeling the chair under you, literally through, through your body. You feel it under your backside and you feel the back of the chair behind your spine. And just focus on that contact between yourself and the furniture. This is a way of grounding yourself in the present moment. And now shift your focus to your hands, which are resting on your knees or in your lap or wherever they are. 
Just feel the weight of your hands on your legs. And notice the contact between your skin and your clothing. Try not to think about it too much, just experience it as it is right now in this moment. Now bring your focus up to your shoulders. This is where most people hold stress and tension because we're always on our phone or computer or working behind a desk. So our shoulders are often quite hunched up. So allow them to drop. Just let, let go and let your shoulders just drop down and be um, relaxed. When thoughts take you away, just gently bring yourself back to your body. Now shift your focus to your face. And again, notice that your face might be tense with the forehead kind of screwed up or furrowed and your jaw might be tight. Just allow all of that to release and relax. Let your face be very loose and very relaxed. And now focus on your breathing. Don't change your breathing, just let it be natural like it normally is. And just focus on the flow of the breath in and out for a few moments. And when your mind wanders, keep returning to the breath. And now to end the session, take a moment to make a commitment to your own mental health, happiness and well-being, together with a wish to support others in their happiness, mental health and well-being. Just make that wish that you may be more kind to yourself and more kind to others. End with that sense of motivation or commitment. Thank you. That was, that was needed. <laughs> Before we started to record, um, I was frantically trying to finish up um, some other bits of work and we're currently building a house. So uh, lots of decisions to be made. So there's a lot happening at the moment and um, taking those moments and taking that time out for you is something that um, I'm aware is a priority and needs to be a priority, but sometimes it goes further down the list. So even taking that moment there to just be aware is, um, it's such a gift. And I think, you know, again, back to the phones, you know, we can scroll for so long on these things. 20 minutes can go like that. And if we spent five, 10 minutes in awareness how how it would help our day, you know, so it's a it's a good reminder. How are you doing in your life right now? You know, I know you're somebody who is lives you know a different life to the majority of us, and um we get to benefit from your wisdom and your insights. Uh, but how are you doing now yourself? So I'm uh, kind of coming out of a long period of ill health in okay, that I had sorry. very severe covid in twenty twenty. Mm -hmm. and um which led to long covid and that sort of derailed my book writing a bit uh, because i started writing this book just before covid and then i got covid and i was too ill to write and so i only managed to really get into the writing last year when i started to feel a bit better and um actually that period of illness did help my book in a way because it's like doing research isn't it you yeah yeah, I, I, yeah. I, was, I was actually thinking that as you were speaking yeah you're researching suffering and mm. getting to know it more and so for me now I'm feeling a lot better I still have little relapses and I know I learn how to manage my energy but I'm I'm in kind of in a good place and I'm I'm really um 
interested to see what conversations now emerge out of people reading this book because it does go into some quite dark places and into some quite challenging places but i hope mm. that I, I i give tools and methods to deal with that and i'm i'm really excited about the conversations that may emerge from that mm. and it's needed because we all know that in this post covid era that the conversation around recovery is is hugely important it's impacted everyone but it's impacted us in all different ways and i think even those of us who think maybe oh i got through that okay we're still feeling the impact of a very strange time in our lives definitely and hard times emerge in so many different ways we all thought when covid was sort of over that there'd be just a big party but no we we went from one struggle to the next you know there's there's war and there's cost of living crisis and life just goes on with all of these challenges and i think there is a way to manage that creatively so that it doesn't have to become so stressful and so horrible there's a way of learning to work with those challenges creatively but it's got to be done in small steps because otherwise it, it it's like an impossible task like trying to climb a huge mountain with no mountaineering equipment you've got to start on the baby slopes mm. and so i really hope that some of the methods i share in the book will give people um a sense of inspiration that they can do it we can all do it you don't have to be a monk you don't have to do these long retreats that's just what i do because i'm a very extreme person but actually these <laughs> techniques are for everybody in any walk of life and doesn't have to be buddhist either the the writing i do and the talks i give are very non-religious it's all just about the philosophy of the mind and the psychology of the mind how have your family been about you being a monk i know you're a monk a long time 30 years it, you know it's not like you went into it uh, yesterday or the day before but um yeah how are the are members in your family uh, about you being a monk is it a, is it is it a cause of celebration was it a cause of confusion for them how did they adapt they're they're very happy about it really delighted lovely and in fact my my mum lives with me at the buddhist center that i run in scarborough Oh. and so she's very much part of it and my my dad also meditates they're they're divorced but on both both sides there's there's um great cause for celebration i will say that um when i first went to the monastery it was only going to be short term and then after 3 years of being a short term monk 3 or 4 years when i decided to take lifelong vows and i phoned them up to tell them they were a bit shocked and they were oh, wow are you sure about this and that's quite a big step but uh mm. they they all my family are really supportive of this and um it's Fabulous. great comes to my talks and she kind of heckles me from the back row <laughs> does she Yeah, totally it's fabulous <laughs> <laughs> and you know before we started to record um what struck me about you straight away was a sense of fun yeah. and i know a lot of this conversation has been you know it's been a little bit heavy at times because i wanted to give the listener a real sense of of perspective if, if particularly if they're going through difficulty right now but i really sense from you that you like to have a laugh absolutely yeah. and i think you know if you're if you're involved in spirituality and meditation and all of that it gets very grim if you go into a sort of uh, very uh, sort of um serious preachy kind of way of talking about this stuff and i i can't stand mm. that i yeah. think we have to be really human and really natural and really ourselves and i really feel that humor is a it is a very powerful force for good and a very powerful way of connecting with people and i'm just naturally into fun but also having the deep conversations and i think the two can go together yes definitely so can we uh, can i ask you to leave us with some final words in your not alone your 30 years of being a monk but your you know your life so far um of what you've learned along the way what you think are the greatest nuggets that will help us i know this this conversation has been peppered with them the whole way through um and talking about those micro moments is is a gorgeous one that will hopefully you know resonate with people and can, they can bring it into their daily lives um but how do we live better well i think it's all about recognizing your own power of choice 
because I think we often live lives where we choose things all the time, but those are external things like I'm choosing to do this or do that or go here or go there. And the idea that you can choose how you think and feel is quite revolutionary. And I think that's the most powerful choice we can make is to learn how to choose to view things differently or to choose to be happy even in difficult situations. And that, as I've said again and again, requires training and tools. But what a what a breakthrough we could all have in our lives if we recognize our own, own power to choose who we are and how we feel. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for this conversation and making time to speak to me and to all of us who are listening to this right now. Best of luck with the, uh, the you know, the book tour and all the interviews that you've coming up. And I'm so grateful to you for making time. I have wanted to speak to you for such a long time. So this it has been a huge thrill for me. So thank you so much, Top 10. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to meet you as well. Thank you. I really loved my conversation with Tubton and his new book, Handbook for Hard Times, A Monk's Guide to Fearless Living, is available online and in all good bookshops now. Next week, we'll be learning all about the autumn equinox with historian Shelley Mooney. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Ready to be Real. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.